I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and terrific to have your company on Democracy Sausage, which is a joint production of the ANU and Policy Forum. Uniquely, we aim to bring together top-level academics and the cream of thinkers in politics and public discourse, often from directly across Lake Burley Griffin, but also from around the world. Universities are too easily derided as ivory towers, somehow untethered to the real world. Now, of course, anyone listening to this podcast is already smart enough to know this is political cant rather than a factual statement. In practice, universities are more pivotal to Australia's economy than critics would have you believe, with recent economic modelling showing that for every $1 invested in university research, something like $5 is returned to the nation's economic output. And universities are deeply integrated with business and are crucial to national wealth, with the education of foreign students worth a staggering $39 billion a year that makes higher education Australia's fourth largest export. In any event, in this episode, we will once again mine the rich vein of knowledge between the academy, politics and the economy with a fab lineup of guests. Joining me as usual is my wonderful colleague at the School of Politics and International Relations, Dr. Maria Taflaga. And Maria, it was minus three this morning when I took Vincent out for his morning walk. As they say, winter is coming. One short-term advantage of the lockdown, though, has been that most rough sleepers have been provided with safe accommodation for now. Yes, that's right, which sort of goes to sort of show that uh, I guess like a lot of issues that have sort of bedeviled us in recent times, it is in many ways a question of um, government priorities or spending priorities that we kind of want to make as a society. But I think uh, recent figures suggested that there are about 105,000 Australians who are homeless. Obviously, not all of those are on the streets, um, but hopefully this is an opportunity for us to open up some discussions about what we do with our most vulnerable because it's not like it's easy to get a job if you can't have a regular shower or can't afford to buy shoes or can't be presentable yeah, for a job interview. Absolutely. And and it's it's kind of I mean we we're all glad to see that people have been, you know, put in motels in in safe and secure, if somewhat precarious in a in a long term sense, accommodation. But you know, I can't help thinking that we let this go on, this situation. It's only when really self-interest kicked in and uh, we didn't want homeless people to become vectors of, of, of the disease, of the virus, 
that we decided they needed to be taken off the streets and put into secure accommodation. I, you know, I mean, let's hope that we are having some sort of reprioritization of, of that and uh, that there'll be more effort put into making sure that we don't have so many people living and sleeping rough. Well, I think that's absolutely, uh, I guess, the, the contest that is being drawn now. Um, we've sort of seen that, you know, both sides of politics, I suppose, are starting to like sketch in, I guess, their sort of battle lines, I suppose. And, you know, I, I know it's a bit pessimistic to say this, but I think politics will only get more intense, not less intense, over the next uh, year or two. Yes, well, with Parliament uh, about to resume this week as we record this, um, we'll probably see that what you're saying is right, that uh, we're going to see a bit, bit more politics uh, along with, uh, along with you know, some of the policy and uh, an atmosphere of cooperation that voters seem to have enjoyed. Now, also with this is former Federal Minister Craig Laundie, who these days is back in his pre-parliamentary life as a successful Sydney publican, having voluntarily relinquished his seat at the 2019 election. But he was a minister in the Turnbull government and a key confidant of the then PM. Craig, as a hospitality employer in the COVID era, you must feel like you went from the frying pan into the freezer. Yeah, Mark, it's, uh, well, firstly, thanks for inviting me to join you on the show. Uh, but I, it's, to be honest, uh, I got out in uh, at the May election last year, went back to the family business, as you just explained, and haven't missed it to be honest, one, one iota until uh, this outbreak. And uh, I, I really, it's the first time since leaving that I wish I was you know, around the table. And, and that said, I have spoken to a lot of former colleagues and proffered thoughts, whether they listen or not, who knows. But uh, it, it's a very challenging time uh, politically, economically and socially uh, in no, no certain order. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're challenged, they're, we're challenged greatly. Yeah, well, there's uh, so much that uh, you're saying there that we can talk about in more detail. I'm also super glad to welcome Australian Associated Press's senior political correspondent, Katina Curtis, with whom I've worked for many years when I was in the press gallery. Katina, welcome to Democracy Sausage at last. What a time to be a political reporter and I guess what a time to be a wire service reporter as well. It's uh, certainly a very interesting time to watch what's going on. <laughs> yes, and uh, yes, it is a an, an interesting time to do that. Um, I, I, what I was referring to with uh, being a wire reporter, though, is because AAP's position is, I guess, uh, a little uncertain, along with all the other uncertainties you're having to deal with. Yes, yes, it is. It's uh, the the wire, as far as we know, is still slated to close at the end of June. Um, there are some buyout talks happening at the moment, um, but the. Every update we get from our from our CEO says another few weeks we'll know something. Yes, that's been going on yeah. Since March. That, that can't be easy, uh, as I say, dealing with all the uncertainties that seem, seem. You know, that's the only certain thing at the moment is that nothing seems certain. Maybe trite to say it, but it's that's actually right. true of uh, of the COVID economy as well as uh, as well as the situation you're facing personally. But I think it's it's certainly been very heartening to see uh, the response initially to the, I mean, the announcement about the closure of the wire, but then also throughout um, the, the last month, couple of months, um, and how much people are turning to the news, to the mainstream news and the, the trusted sources of information. Yes, long may it be so. 
So social restrictions are on the way out, so it seems. The federal government is looking to spur things along with uh, Scott Morrison's repeated warnings that anything we closed down, we had to close down for six months, uh, seeming to uh, have been a bit premature. Craig Laundy, to you first. Can we start by giving listeners, uh, you mentioned before about returning to the family business, can we, can we start just by you giving a, a bit of a snapshot, a picture of what your business is and you know, what it is that you do? Yeah, so Mark, I'm a third generation, uh, predominantly Western Sydney publican, although we've ended up spreading out all over New South Wales in the end. Uh, and my business, uh, the workforce is predominantly uh, uh, casual uh, based on whether it's, you know, we roster according to uh, trade, basically. And at the moment, obviously, with no trade, we've got our business in what you would effectively call hibernation. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, we've got uh, around 1,300 casual staff that are on job uh, keeper and uh, awaiting the, uh, the chance to open up uh, at some stage in the future and resume business, whatever that might look like. And what has the lockdown meant, though? I mean, uh, presumably you say most of your uh, workforce is employed on casual contracts. Presumably many of those are less than 12 months, so they're not people who are eligible for uh, for the JobKeeper assistance. Some of them would be, though, I, I imagine. The, the vast majority of, of our staff were entitled to it. Those, obviously, that weren't are on uh, job. Uh, seeker. Job seeker, yeah, yeah. the, the, the uh, slightly lesser yes. one, but which is the, the doubled old uh, New Start allowance, which yes. is a whole lot better than it was. Yeah. Just on that, uh, just stopping there for a moment, do you expect, I mean, both of these things are scheduled to end in September, October. Do you expect the government to just simply take uh, Job Seeker uh, back to what the New Start level was? Uh, that's going to be Maria said in uh, in her introduction when talking about the issue of uh, those of sleeping rough and the uh, you know where politics would go to post the uh, bipartisan effect that we've seen. That's going to be another major issue. Uh, I, I you know that they the the government would say at the moment that their line is that yes it will go back to that, but I think it's going to be uh, and and I think. What we also need, and I'm sure we'll discuss it and unpack it more today, uh, they're, they're saying up to six months. But the, the problem, if you look at my industry, tourism and hospitality, which uh, pre the virus employed around 13% of the, uh, the, the, the nation, uh, you know, we're not going to go back. If we, you can presume that when we do open, and we're slated at this stage as of Friday announced by Scott, uh, stage three, we're going to come out of this with social distancing in place. And, and what that in my industry basically means, uh, whether it's a bar, a restaurant, uh, a hotel, a pub, a corner pub or a accommodation hotel, you are going to be limited, I would imagine, by the size, the square footage of your of your venue. And, uh, you know, take a pub up the road here from where I live, the, our local we own is the Woolwich Pier. Uh, you know, if one and a half square metres is the rule that they stick with, which I am envisaging it will be, uh, I'm only going to have about a third of my floor space and my furniture that I had out there previous to March 23. That means I'm only going to be able to take 25% of what I formerly took and businesses around this country are going to then be left looking at, because let's be blunt, I'm only going to have 25% of my former workforce 
that means there's 75% until we can get through to whatever stage it is where those social distancing restrictions are lifted that would still be looking for work. And I, I don't think, you know, Scott's, yes, given himself an initial six-month window, but I think there's going to be some very interesting discussions uh, in a whole range of industries, not just mine, about uh, how this economy reboots and the, the time, the lag that it takes to get back up to full speed. And, and presumably your, uh, your costs aren't going to be just 25% of normal operating costs either. So you're, you're going to... Well, Mark, that, that's going to make that, some of those businesses quite marginal, presumably. Well, absolutely. And, and put it this way, if you've got your local corner cafe, which, you know, prior the virus could fit in 50, 60 people, but after it fits in 15, I think you're going to see, like, that business would become unviable. And I think you are going to see in my industry, and I don't, it will be peculiar to my industry, uh, there are going to be a lot of business owners that are faced with the decision that they'd actually lose less money uh, out of their own, let's not forget, they're putting their house on the line uh, and taking on bank loans. They'd be losing less money closing the business than reopening the business. Well, I think this is actually a really important point. Um, you know, and understandably, the government uh, is sort of trying to build up confidence again uh, and has sort of got a fairly simple narrative about, you know, we need to reopen the economy to get things kind of going. But what Craig has just sort of outlined there is the reality that these are actually really quite complex and nuanced um, problems. And it's not necessarily government's role to be able to sort of solve all of these. But what is interesting to me, or I guess what is a really open question for me is, is how much scope is there within the government and their thinking to sort of allow this kind of more complex set of uh, ways of thinking about problems to kind of emerge. I mean, I just saw a reporting this morning saying that there are people pushing within the coalition to have JobKeeper and JobSeeker wound up by July, which is, you know, seven weeks away. Uh, so for, for, for one of the sort of things that is sort of the things we have to kind of consider is that you've got these sort of very different and strange and disproportionately affected segments of the economy which affect certain people more than others, the young. Um, it seems like women have been losing more jobs because they're more likely to be in the service sector. Um, and, you know, you've got the government that wants to kind of reboot the economy and get everything going again. But it's it's not like this recovery will be able to be even, all things being equal, because of the way the virus sort of functions. And so exactly what role the government is going to define for itself in that, will that be seen as adequate compared to what other people say they should be doing and what the opposition says could be done? Katina, do you think this is uh, one of the sort of um, uncomfortable intersections between politics and economics or between politics as a uh, competitive uh, endeavor uh, parliamentary politics and the realities of the of the um, the, the real economy uh, that as Maria says there are so many complexities here involved in the decisions that individual businesses have to make and the the effect of the lockdown on the economy uh, but politically uh, Scott Morrison needs to be sending and does appear to be doing this sending a message of of confidence of 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 there being a destination here which is obviously some some version of recovery and he so you know there's a there's a sort of an upbeat uh, atmosphere coming from the federal government 
and and it's really it's really interesting contrasting. I mean, you had Scott Morrison coming out on Friday, be you know fairly positive, as you say, about the way forwards, and then. Um, Immediately after him, we had all the, the state premiers stand up, and they were all being a lot more cautious and um, outlining various different timetables. Some a bit faster, some a bit slower, depending on what the situation in their state is. But as you, as Craig said as well, it's you know that the very different sectors are facing very different issues. So it will be a big problem um, for the government to try and work out how to have an approach that's fair to everyone when you can't have a one-size-fits-all kind of approach because the economy isn't isn't one size. Um, so, yeah, that will be interesting to watch. And actually, as we're recording this now, Anthony Albanese is giving another one of his big speeches um, to caucus this morning and he's, he's really, I guess, upping the ante on the politics from what we've seen over the past few months. Um, he's sort of attacking the government a bit for slow action and really saying it's it seems to be coming around in a lot of ways to seeing Labor's point of view on how the, how we should approach the economy and government's role in it. That's That's going to be so interesting to see how that plays out because we've had this, you know, this kind of almost sense of a, of a Peloton, where both the uh, uh, the opposition and the government have been all peddling in the same direction. It's all been about unity through the you know the, the darkest days of this health pandemic, the health aspect of it. It's not to say that some of those days won't return. That's always a risk as well. But we we now feel like we're moving into this period afterwards, the rebuild, and you can see these you know these divergences emerging. You can see distance growing between uh, where the government is and where where the opposition is uh, f- philosophical differences seem to be widening uh, Craig do you think that's going to um, undermine in any way what the government's trying to do or is this a good thing uh, no it, w- it won't undermine it, but I, I agree that at some stage the the gloves are going to come back off and you know it, it's quite ironic that We've through this crisis, the first time in, in in a long time, there are a couple of things that you know coming having come from politics for a while that that have been very interesting for me to watch. Firstly, is the bipartisanship and what we've managed to achieve because of it. The second is that I would argue federalism, our system of parliament through the national cabinet, has worked the best that it, it ever has since nineteen oh one. Um, and having sat and chaired many COAG meetings over the years, you know, it used to be, or we, it was like herding cats. Um, and, you know, it's going to come down to, and I, and I think the Australian pop- population have done two things. One, appreciated that greatly, but, but secondly, ter- switched on and listened as a result. And that's, I think, underpinning the amazing results we've seen in, in flattening the curve. Um, but the question will be where, and I think the punches will start to be thrown again politically when the interests start to divide, uh, you know, and, we, and as we get back to reopening the economy, I think you're going to see the unions start to ramp up and they've been very, very quiet over the past uh, uh, few months, obviously, and, and very uh, agreeable and, 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 and worked with the government to get stuff through and get it done. But when that fork in the road comes, and I don't think it's too far away, and I think it will be as we start to open stuff up, 
uh, particularly if employment doesn't trend up the way that both the RBA and Treasury announced last Friday, uh, I, I think you're really going to start to get some political punches to be thrown at that space. Oh, I, I was going to say, I think that's right. And we're actually already gearing up for a bit more of a fight this week um, in Parliament with Labor's looking to disallow the change that got made that gives uh, bosses only have to give uh, one day's notice of changes they want to make to the enterprise agreements instead of seven days as it was previously. And it's actually the Parliament's Human Rights Commission took some legal advice on that among amongst a bunch of other um of the coronavirus legislation and that advice actually pointed out that that one day of notice could be a weekend day or a public holiday depending on how it is so that particular change kind of blindsided the union movement who thought they'd been largely having discussions with the government and coming to um coming to a point of view that everyone could agree on for the time being so that yeah, as you say, Craig, it will be interesting to see where they go and I think that we'll probably will start to see a bit more fight in yeah. the coming months. Well, the stakes have never really been higher. I mean, everyone is talking about this being a, you know, um, a chance for us to reassess the structure of our economy. Like the fight actually doesn't get any more high stakes than that. You know, we'll make decisions that will reset how we relate to the state, how our economy is structured and what we want from it. Well, just on that, uh, Maria, do you think liberalism has gone through some sort of hinge point? Is is it going to be the same afterwards? Are we going to see, I know I'm asking you to make predictions here that no one else can authoritatively make either, but are we going to see um, both sides of politics accepting that the state has a different presumably bigger role in the economy than has been the case in you know for the last few decades really that's a really interesting question and i guess i will sort of answer it in this kind of way i mean before this crisis happened there was already a very strong contest within the coalition about the role of the state right so you sort of have on on one side you had sort of tim wilson um and his kind of uh group of people that wanted to see Australia become even more outward facing, even more competitive, a smaller role for the state. Uh, and then, of course, you've had your George Christiansons of the world who want to build more dams. Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at energy policy, I mean, we're, we're basically talking about buying coal-fired power stations and picking winners. Uh, and uh, some of the sort of things that Angus Taylor has been saying recently around using the sort of uh, – clean energy finance um, money to sort of push it into energy sectors that he's more, you know, inclined to view politically, like goes to the fact that the the idea that the state shouldn't be involved has never really gone away. What is sort of interesting, though, is the government's reaction to the Virgin um, collapse, right? You know, for a government that was interested in seeing the a bigger role for the state. This was potentially an opportunity for them to do that. And I guess they've sort of signaled that they still believe in, you know, sort of market principles as we've sort of understood them from the coalition for the last 20 years. And if you look at the structure of their, uh, you know, COVID uh, committee, it's sort of, it's dominated by business interests and everything they've said so far leads us to believe that, you know, they want a business-led recovery. So rhetorically, it seems that what they're kind of interested in doing is um, returning things to the status quo, but perhaps with some 
more kind of efficiency in, say, the tax system. There's been some discussion about, you know, um, changing certain kind of stack, uh, state land taxes because they're more efficient and so on and so forth. Good luck on getting that through. But um, the, the the important question is actually what are circumstances, what, what circumstances uh, dish up to this government which may actually kind of force their hand. But, you know, I think this talk about rolling back JobKeeper and the fact that they might be able to have money left over sort of suggests that I don't think the Liberal Party is necessarily interested in increasing the role of the state, and that makes sense. That's consistent with that party's philosophy and view of the world. I think one of the areas where it will be interesting to see if their mind changes is in manufacturing because, I mean, We've seen the position that's happened over the the last um, decade or so where manufacturing has largely declined in Australia, but now we're suddenly going, oh, we need people in Australia who can make masks. We need people in Australia who can make ventilators. And there's been a, a big scramble um, in the industry department to actually work with industry and get that manufacturing happening. And there'll be we'll see that again, I think, if a vaccine is found, we'll, be, we'll have a big scramble to get the capacity to make that here. Let's take a quick break there, and when we return, we'll continue the discussion. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, just before the break, uh, Maria was talking about manufacturing. Maria and Katina were indeed talking about the changes to the economy. Craig, you've been a Minister for Industry and Technology and Industrial Relations and a range of other things. Um, What are your thoughts on on this question about whether the economy will be transformed and indeed whether your party uh, will have a different attitude toward um, I guess, you know, the state's role in the economy? Uh, Well, Mark, yeah, I I was one of the, Greg Hunt and myself and Arthur Sinodinus were put in charge of the National Innovation and Science Agenda by Malcolm back in 2015. So the the coalition's focus on uh, on manufacturing has been, there was a big pivot point in, uh, and to go to Maria's point, in 2015, we realised that we couldn't compete, and this feeds into a little bit of industrial relations as well, um, surprisingly, but we couldn't compete in the manufacturing space, uh, you know, in the mass-produced uh, platform because uh, other countries, and predominantly China, uh, have wage structures that are far, far lower than ours. So we made a conscious decision as a government back then 
to uh, to really invest in, in high end uh, in manufacturing and uh, technology. And you know, I, I had the the honour of uh, of overseeing and launching and, and visiting a lot of businesses around the country. There really has been a market change, and Maria is right. Things like producing face masks, ventilators, if that needed to be required. You know, we've got some of the world's best aerospace companies uh, spread out right around the country, uh, d- d- delivering high-end uh, product to uh, foreign governments day in and day out. So that that has already commenced, and uh, but I think. It needs to a hasten up. Obviously, it needs to remain a key priority, and and it will from the coalition. Uh, but also, there needs to be at some stage a serious sit down. We, you know, with with both sides, uh, the union movement and industry, sitting around the table and coming there in good faith. Because uh, you know, you mentioned I was the minister for industrial relations, uh, and Tony Burke. I saw interviewed yesterday on Insiders talking about the death of bargaining. In this country, uh, you know, I think that that both sides need to give some ground on this because industrial relations is a key area that basically hasn't been touched since two thousand and four, uh, or two thousand and seven, I should say, as a result of changes that occurred in two thousand and four in the work choices uh, election. Um, but it needs to be revisited, but revisited by both sides in good faith. And whether you can ever achieve that industrial relations is, you know, the sixty four dollar question. Craig, can I ask, um, so on what you were saying about manufacturing, that's that's very interesting, particularly as someone who has been an insider. Uh, what is, you know, like what do you think the appetite for sort of uh, rethinking how the Australian economy will be structured is actually there within the coalition? It absolutely is, Maria, and has, as I said, has been since 2015. You know, Malcolm made a, a, a key policy announcement. Christopher Pine was the, the original minister in charge, uh, saying that we needed to, to, you know, to focus on high end. And, you know, it, it, it really has. There's been significant uh, investment. And, and it's a key word. You know, everyone uses the term grant or, uh, you know, I, I view, I've always viewed it when ministerially and, in, in, you know, giving money to businesses that, you know, you want two KPIs, you want them to make more money so you clip the ticket uh, on their tax bill and you also want them to employ more people and they grow so you clip the ticket of the employee's tax bill. And that's the return on investment proposition that Malcolm was very keen to uh, to lay down from 2015 and, and it really is the same today. But I would argue, Maria, it probably needs to be even more front and centre of mind and... Uh, you know, look what resources can be further deployed to hasten the uh, the growth in that sector of high-end manufacturing in this country because it upskills too, and this is the flow on, it upskills the workforce at the same time. And that's the only chance for us to compete in a global stage in the manufacturing space. We need to be at the high-end and that technically uh, high-end of jobs as well. Craig, critics of the coalition would say that uh, it, you know, rather blithely presided over the end of the Australian car industry, uh, you know, a key manufacturing sector, albeit one that had been on a degree of life support for, you know, many years, um, and that uh, in the industrial relations space, it's very well, the coalition's very well known for work choices, as you uh, just made the point, um, and, and even within this uh, COVID crisis when there was this huge 
uh, atmosphere of cooperation between Labor and, and, and the coalition government, that is Labor with a U and the coalition government, the ACTU I'm thinking of, um, there was this moment, as Katina said, where there was this change to the uh, to the um, uh, enterprise bargaining agreement arrangements uh, that um, uh, seemed to have been snuck under the radar a bit and uh, really sullied things. So do you think that the... Uh, goodwill is there to, to for the coalition to kind of adjust and 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 make these uh, you know these directional changes without um, you know I mean do they have the courage and the goodwill to do it? That's that's what I termed earlier in the podcast as a sixty four dollar question and and the goodwill and the good faith again I've used these terms repeatedly in this podcast it, it needs to be on both sides of the fence uh, we we've in, we've just come through a period where it, it it has been, um, but as I said earlier, the challenge will be: can that be maintained? And you know, and, and I don't leave out industry out of the equation too. So it's not just government and and the Liberal Party, the and the Nats, and the Labor Party, and the union movement. It's industry as well, and key stakeholders in that. And uh, you know, that's that's going to be the big challenge because uh, you know it, it, it is. I'm genuinely nervous about what this economy looks like in the uh, in the last quarter of this year, post-September finish of JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Um, but, you know, and I'm, I've obviously got far better vision of my own industry. Um, yes, and I'm extremely nervous for my, for my own industry, but I'm, I'm genuinely um, nervous for the economy moving forward. And, and you might well find that if it doesn't tick up like, the RBA and Treasury, both independent of each other, announced on Friday. Maybe, just maybe, that uh, that sense of goodwill and good faith will be forced on those uh, key stakeholders to sit around a table and look at what they can do for long-term structural reform. Some of the estimates in the US put the unemployment rate there at 25%. And Stephen Mnuchin, the um, uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, has talked about uh, it being possibly significantly higher than that again. He said something along the lines of, well, if you shut down the economy, you shouldn't be all that surprised if, you know, half the uh, half the workforce is out of work. Uh, these are staggering kinds of numbers, as are indeed, uh, you know, the, the uh, pandemic numbers in the US. D- do you really think our unemployment, I mean, we've obviously fared much better from a pandemic point of view, um, and our governments have as you said before, Craig, have worked together. We've seen federalism working and and they got out much earlier than was the case in the US or indeed even in the UK. Um, but do you think our, our economy is as rosy as some of these forecasts have it and will our employment really top out at 10 or or even 11%? Is, is it, what, what's your sense? No, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous on, on two fronts. I don't think... The understanding of the depth of the crisis, uh, in as I said, I, I keep going back to the, the December quarter. Uh, I don't think the understanding of how deep and slow will come out of the crisis will be, uh, and the number of businesses that won't reopen. I'm extremely nervous about that, uh, you know, because it really does become a cost-benefit analysis for the business owner. Uh, and when it gets to the situation where, uh, through no fault of their own, opening, you know, they, they lose 
less money each day by keeping the doors closed, uh, you know, which a lot of businesses in this stage one uh, of the road to recovery that Scott mentioned on Friday, you know, technically uh, all of my bistros can now be reopened in, in the coming week uh, with 10 people in them. Now, there are two problems there. One, I can't possibly open them because I can't make them profitable. I'll be losing money. Uh, secondly, the, the practical reality of what do you do? Put a security guard on the door and, you know, make sure there's 10 people. You could have an, 100 people lined up outside wanting to come in. Um, so, look, I really do think they are being optimistic with their – the other part of your question was, do I think unemployment will top out at 10%, which is what they're currently saying. I really think that's optimistic and I think their metal is going to be tested uh, potentially as early as I think there'll be some serious questions start to be raised come the start of August. And there was an interesting detail in the RBA statement last week as well about unemployment that they were saying that they, while they were predicting it would it would top out at ten percent, they they think that actually the participation rate will drop significantly. That is, a lot of people who have don't have jobs won't actually be counted as unemployed because they won't be actively looking for jobs because they'll look around at what's going on and say, well, there's no job to be found. Yes, this is the so-called LFPR, as it used to be referred to, the Labor Force Participation Rate, and it really that that's because unemployment is measured on the basis of people who are actively looking for work, and there's a definition in the uh, in the statistical surveying of that which requires that a person has to have been actively looking for work at some time. I think in the last two weeks, um, and if they haven't, then they then they're no longer sort of uh, categorised as unemployed, and and obviously in times of of profound recession uh, where the prospects of getting work are so low that a lot of people give up, then you get the statistics sort of under-representing unemployment. Um, so it hides the real problem or hides the yes. extent of the, of the problem. And it does so at both ends of the labour, I mean, right through the labour force, but particularly at the top end where you get people in the uh, 55, 60-year-old and above range who drop out of the workforce and who have no real prospect of ever working again uh, in where they were working and perhaps at all. Well, there's a second part to it too, Mark. It's, it's that, that's the, yes, they have the technical challenges of we, why we may not actually get to know how bad it is, but there's the other side of underemployment as well. And I think you're going to see massive underemployment issues. Yeah, that's that's something you'd know quite a lot about, I guess, being a, an employer of a lot of people on casuals. It's the hours that they get which determines how much they earn per week and if they can't get enough hours. A- absolutely. And they're counted as employed, but that they can't get the work. And that was the you know very simple equation I mentioned in my introduction. If in my sector as an example, if if we can trade with 30 to 35% of the patrons that we can technically hold, uh, you know, we can only take 35% of the revenue we're used to and we'll only need 35% of the uh, workforce that we're used to. So the other 65% will be getting something because I'll, I'll share it around. Uh, you know, I don't like want to see people go without, but the, the other 65% are going to effectively be underemployed. Craig, how critical is it in your estimation, uh, given the sector you work in, uh, that we see tourism operating again because this seems to be the the accepted view of governments, state and federal, is that as the restrictions come off, the last one that will come off will be the travel bans. 
uh, particularly internationally, but also at the moment, most of the states have their their jurisdictions closed off. This must be a, a very strong element of the hospitality uh, caper as well. Well, Mark, absolutely. And I can't see tourism, especially inbound, uh, overseas tourism, I can't see the, the travel ban being lifted until there's a vaccine. Uh, I don't see how you could do it because logistically, if we did reopen, they'd need to be coming here and sort and isolating for two weeks before starting their holiday. The, no, I don't know what the percentage would be, but the overwhelming majority of people coming here would be actually coming for for less than two weeks, you know. And so, you know, and who'd want to sign up for an overseas holiday to Australia for four or five weeks where you spend the first two weeks and isolated in a hotel room with a security guard at the end of the hallway? Um, you know, that's just the practical reality of where we find. Now, I did note Simon Birmingham, uh, the, the minister, uh, ha- announced, and I think this will be very important, uh, as, as we internally get on top of this, we need to, uh, on the way out, really promote uh, tourism, obviously, domestically, because none of us can go overseas either, uh, you know, and I think that will be vital. But, you know, something like accommodation hotels in this uh, in this debacle that we've seen unfold uh, of the virus, you know, the, a key sector of that industry coming out is the conferencing industry. Now, you know, the Manly Pacific Hotel, which my family owns at, at, on the beach at Manly, we have a conference room there that can hold 250 people uh, and does regularly. But after social distancing, it can hold about 75, you know, plus, you know, what businesses can afford to go on conferences after they've just seen massive hits to their revenue lines? You know, so the domino effect, the, 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 the roll-on effect of all these things is why, and, and you know, look at the, the sheer numbers. As I said, my sector employs thirteen percent of the economy. You know, if we if we can if we can hold open our premises and and have a third of the space that we used to have, uh, you know, presumably two thirds of the workforce are going to be unemployed. You know, that that could potentially be six to seven percent unemployment figure by itself, just in nationally in my industry. Which is why I, I said earlier in the podcast, I think. The unemployment uh, predictions, I think you're going to find they're going to be undercooked. How worried are you about Virgin? Uh, and 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 do you do you stand with the the government on this? It's obviously taken a very strong sort of philosophical position that the government doesn't want to be in the business of owning airlines or owning equity stakes in airlines. Um, yeah, Virgins though. Are yeah, look, and the pr- the precedent there is obviously Qantas. Um, you know, and 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 the fact that the coalition. Uh, when it ran into strife in 2014-15, didn't support it either. But look, I'm worried if we if if we don't find a buyer for Virgin. Uh, however, I'm led to believe that there is strong interest, uh, and there's a data room being set up by uh, I think it's Deloitte that's managing the administration, and I do believe that there are. Uh, it may well be it was either high single digits or early double digits. That, uh, that are interested in acquiring Virgin. So I think you will see Virgin Mark II. I don't know what it will look like, but I do think there'll be a solution to that problem. It's sort of what, I mean, what you've sort of been saying, Craig, um, goes to the point that whilst the coronavirus has absolutely been an opportunity for Scott Morrison to um, rescue his reputation after the bushfires, uh, there are so many potential um, curveballs coming at us 
that it's equally an opportunity for Labor to recast this debate if the government um, can't be flexible enough with the sort of optimistic view of the economy and market-led economy recovery um, or business-led recovery, sorry, versus what might be people's actual lived experience. And that's sort of where it can kind of become dangerous um, for the government if they can't uh, sort of speak to um, speak with multiple kind of levels of nuance about how the economy will be travelling as we go forward. And I'm sure they will be able to do that in some degree or some fashion as, as circumstances change. But um, it is it is kind of interesting that the Prime Minister's um, rhetoric on the economy is as positive as it is given the sort of what we already know about uh, who's been impacted disproportionately in what ways and the reality of problems for businesses like yours opening up and whether or not they can actually make any money. Yeah, uh, Maria, absolutely right. And there's another X factor in here um, that at some stage will flip against the PM. At the moment, uh, you know, I mentioned key stakeholders earlier in the discussion in in the podcast with relation to industrial relations. But economically, there is a real big key stakeholder that at the moment has done all the right things, and and that is the banking sector. But at some stage, they have to become commercial again themselves. They have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders to do so. Uh, I think that too will be another potential massive landmine that that the PM and Josh will will need to navigate and, you know, you could see at the moment early indications are that, you know, they've come out publicly, the banks, and they're doing the right thing and they've, you know, let everyone defer interest for three months. Uh, you know, we're, we're more than, you know, halfway through that three months now. Um, and as I've said many times in this podcast, I'm nervous about what lays ahead and the speed of the recovery. At some stage, there are going to, you would presume, be discussions between banks and businesses right across the country which might not be too pleasant as well. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned banks actually, Craig uh, Laundie, because I was that, that was going to be my next question. That they are said to be carrying something in the order of 160 billion dollars worth of deferred loans. Uh, so they are leaning into it uh, as they have been asked to do. Uh, perhaps some salvation for them after some pretty rocky years uh, when all kinds of uh, malfeasance and poor behaviour was exposed through the Royal Commission and everything else. But as you say, there are fiduciary responsibilities they have to their shareholders. Uh, they're too big to fail. They are. Um, it's it's important that the uh, the liquidity and and um, um, prudential strength of the banking sector remain. So there are going to be some difficult questions. There are businesses that are being described at the moment. Uh, you probably know some of these, Craig. Um, zombie businesses, businesses that are effectively surviving because they have uh, government subsidy and don't really have any real prospect once that subsidy turns off of staying around that's going to have implications for for banks as well who are carrying uh, you know uh, debts you know from those banks yeah absolutely mark and you saw it last week the nab were the first ones out of the gun to deliver results or under the gun for delivering results and you know there were big big upticks in what they're provisioning for what they call doubtful debts um, you know and that's that's how banks uh, run their profit and loss statements. They each year have an amount that they provision will be uh, doubtful debts, as in may not be replayed, repaid, 
and uh, they, they would be ratcheting up. The NAB were the first to do it, but I, I think you'll find this week you'll, the, the other three will announce that they're all doing the same um, and because there are going to be, sadly, uh, when some, uh, you know, a lot of these businesses that existed pre-COVID-19 are taken off government support, life support, or hibernation support, if you like, because they've been put to sleep, that uh, pretty quickly are, as I said, going to be put in a position where they're having some uncomfortable discussions with their banks. Now, Craig, I can't let you go without asking you about Malcolm Turnbull's book, A Bigger Picture. <laughs> have you read the book and uh, any any thoughts about it? No, mate, I, I, I have a copy of the book. Uh, I've been a, a, a little bit busy. It sounds ironic given that the business is put to sleep, but we've been trying to work out how to, to look out. You know, we had to get uh, signed up for JobKeeper and, and uh, get staff paid and what have you. So, But do plan to have a, have a look at it. Um, uh, spoke to Malcolm, actually. Uh, uh, when was it? Last Thursday, Friday. Um, going to catch up with him and Lucy for a bite to eat shortly, but uh, but yeah, it's I've obviously been reading the bits and pieces in the newspaper and uh, and listening to various critiques across the board, and uh, but I look forward to having a read. What have you read it? Uh, yes, well, I've read parts of it. I haven't read the whole thing, um, but uh, it's uh, I've certainly read parts of it and uh, read much of the uh, commentary about it. Uh, and uh, it's certainly a version of of history, a very comprehensive version uh, of history. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it's it's Malcolm's perspective. It is his memoir, after all. And prime ministers have former prime ministers have a right to to provide those perspectives. Uh, but there are some people who say that it's uh, you know it's, it's selective in in some regard. Um, yeah. So, but you know, you were obviously uh, a very close confidant of Malcolm Turnbull's uh, right through that period where he was under siege, and when he was eventually taken out, you were very often pictured uh, at his side, uh, known to have been helping with with the numbers and so forth. Was that the, the reason you left politics? The disappointment with uh, the removal of yet another Australian prime minister? No, uh, we. I ran into some. Uh, I actually ran into some dramas. One of my. Uh, one of my young kids isn't a hundred percent, so we had some uh, challenges as a, as a family. Uh, I, I had always said I wouldn't do it for a, a long time. It was a chance to serve and, and try and make a little bit of a difference. And I think you may have said that to me when you know one of the earliest meetings we ever had. You may have said that to me, and uh, turned out to be true. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I, one of the, the the things I used to love when I was in the circus was that I wasn't uh, a career politician and uh, also wasn't scared to call it as I saw it. And, uh, and so, uh, so, yeah, I had a lot of fun, uh, but, uh, but it was time to get back to work. <laughs> I wonder oh what your God. colleagues will make of that statement, <laughs> your former colleagues. <laughs> well, it's, it's work of a kind, but it's, uh, you know, it, for me, you know what? To be honest, it never was work. It, it literally was a chance to serve. And uh, whereas you know, I, I've always, I was always going to come back and, and resume life as a as a publican. 
And Katina, just finally to you, uh, Parliament's obviously back for uh, for this week, but uh, there's not much in the way of a sitting schedule. Is this politically viable for you know for us to be talking about uh, various sporting codes, contact sporting codes coming back, and and uh, the the PM leaning on on uh, state governments to free up the economy, but Parliament itself is still on a kind of a, a skeleton schedule. Yeah, look, I'm I'm not sure it's. The, sends the best message. Um, they, if you look at parliaments around the world, I mean, the in the UK they're managing to do parliament via Zoom. Apparently, they've put big screens up in the chamber so that uh, they can have a minimum number of people there, physically there, and then politicians can actually um, beam in externally. So I don't know if we might see some some trials like that, perhaps also more MPs will be agitating to be able to participate in the, the weeks that are scheduled. Um, I was just having a quick look at the revised calendar earlier um, because we've got the sitting week this week, but we're still missing um, four weeks that were scheduled through May and June. And as it stands at the moment after this week, there's a 12-week break until they come back, <laughs> which is double the normal length of the winter break. Uh, so yes, I'm not. I'm not sure that it's viable. But then at the same time, um, when you look at what is on the agenda for Parliament, there's actually not a lot that's perhaps controversial or, or what you might term big ticket items um, beyond the the coronavirus um, legislation, which there's a few more p- bits and pieces dealing with this week. So. Uh, perhaps they need to. There needs to be a few more ideas before we do come back and have some more sittings. Could, could I add to that? I mean, one of the things that listeners should really understand is that Australia has one of the lowest levels of sitting days uh, for uh, a sort of a democracy. We already have a very low number, uh, and so I would say that. Um, now is not the time to be cutting back, even if governments don't have that much on the agenda. Parliament is a deliberative body. It's the representatives of us, of us as electors. And I think it's essential that at a time when we are spending an enormous amount of money and undergoing uh, significant once-in-a-century changes, that our parliamentarians are able to deliberate, whether it's via physically or via Zoom, um, in order to have those essential policy debates so we can build goodwill and, you know, craft a future for ourselves. So bring that parliament, I say. Yeah, yeah, have faith in the rigour of the process. I mean, accountability is an important point. I, I just quickly, Maria, want to defend my former colleagues on both sides of the chamber. Obviously, yes, sitting at, in parliament is extremely important, uh, but when they're not sitting in parliament, it's not like they're not working. Uh, I didn't say that. No, 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 but it's, it's just so the listeners understand the life, particularly of a marginal seat MP, uh, you, you know, you, you, you're out, you're away from the family, obviously for the 22 weeks on average they're sitting in Canberra a year, but when you're home, you're hardly home. You're out and about in the electorate. You know, you could have two or three functions a night that you're getting to. You're working all weekend at fates, at, you know, sporting events, you know, getting around and trying to, talk to the community it is it is a tough gig and even, it is even a tough gig moment, that's absolutely true even at the moment there's actually been a, a bunch of the MPs who have been out delivering practical assistance to people in their community and um, also a lot doing a lot of uh, welfare calls to um, the older residents in their communities so which is to make check on them make sure they're doing okay in these tough times 
I mean, I, the final point I would sort of make is that, well, you know, Australian seats are also actually very large. Yeah. And I, I don't think anyone will necessarily congratulate me for saying this, but, you know, I for one think we actually need way more politicians than we have. Um, you know, Parliament was built to house them. Uh, 100,000 or 100,000 electors is actually a huge number for any one MP to deal with. But and, the, that's, you know, and, Maria, that's just electors. Don't forget that it, it, that's, that's 115 to 130,000, but that's really uh, when, you, when you put in kids and, uh, and uh, everyone else, it's, it's more likely to be around 350 to 400,000 people. Yeah, so, you know, if we can... Um, if we can actually build the capacity to have other ways of sitting, right, via Zoom or whatever, well, that actually might make Parliament more accessible to MPs to be able to stay in their communities to not always commute. That's better for women. You know, um, we shouldn't be turning away from our critical institutions at a time when we are making really important and profound decisions for our future. This should be we should be doubling down on Parliament, on making it work better, on you know, tooling it up for the way we actually live now. I completely agree. I think you might find that just as a lot of businesses are learning that you can actually work differently and um, work in ways that 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 the workers want to, it's obviously not across all industries, but but some of them. I thought I think Parliament might find that it can work differently as well, and it might be finally give it a kick along to give a bit of a try to electronic voting in the chamber, which has been long discussed but never implemented, and a, a few changes like that. Good point. Uh, I think we'll have to end it there. I'm glad I uh, kicked open that uh, door on parliamentary sittings. It turned out to be quite a uh, quite a large room. Um, Thanks uh, for joining us, uh, Craig Laundie, uh, Katina Curtis, and, of course, Maria Taflaga, who's uh, with us each week on Democracy Sausage. Look out for us again later in the week with a Democracy Sausage Extra. And until then, ciao for now. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.